the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2020 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. This show is in a couple of different parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. In today's world, believe me, it's very important to avoid going through court. And as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about history, politics, religion, Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about history, and to help us with those subjects, we have one of our attorneys on, Nicole Donnelly. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be here. I must warn you guys, though, me, history, uh, if you've heard me before, you know it's not my forte. Well, I think, you know, at at the next segment, we're going to be talking about the Dahlgren Raid, and if you live out in Bay Ridge, where we do, and you live near Fort Hamilton, um... There's a street called Dahlgren Street, which is named after the the guy who invented the Dahlgren gun, which is the big cannon uh, that's at the base of the Verrazano Bridge, basically on 4th Avenue and 101st Street. So if you're ever driving by that area and you see the huge cannon that way back whenever could f- fire a couple of miles, that's the Dahlgren gun. Now, the Dahlgren we're talking about is going to be the son of the guy who invented the Dahlgren. Gun. We're going to be talking about the Dahlgren Raid, which I think is one of the overlooked parts of American history. And uh, hopefully, you know, we'll have a good time talking about it. So, Nicole, you're going to be listening in on that, right? I can certainly say I didn't learn about it in American history. So you might be right. It might be one of those parts that they just don't focus on and they really should. OK, well, getting back to estate planning, we're talking about wills in general. And what what question do you have to that we want to focus on for the show? So we have a couple of good ones that come up often. So, Mr. Connors, one of our big questions is how important is it for a person who is, you know, trying to do their estate plan to know the real legal names of their agents and beneficiaries? Well, it's 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 somewhat important to know the real names of your agents, because if let's say after you're gone or when you're alive, they're trying to transact business on your behalf. If their ID, some kind of official ID, doesn't match the name 
in the documents, they could have a little bit of a problem. You know, it's not like in the old days you could use any name you wanted to. If, you know, you, you wanted to say your name was Sean and it was John or vice versa, it really didn't matter. In today's world, um, it, it, it kind of does matter because people are a lot, since the Patriot Act in 2001, people are a lot more technical about names. So I would we try to get the driver's license or a copy of the driver's license or passport of anybody who's named as an agent under our will, power of attorney, health care proxy trust. Now, as far as somebody who's just named in the will, how's important? Well, as long as the executor, trustee, the person in charge knows who the person is and can reasonably identify him, that's the, the main point. Like if you have, you know, guy's nickname or whatever and he's left something under the will well if it's clearly your intent and there's no confusion about who the guy is it won't be a problem but what if there is some confusion let's say you have two cousins with the same name you should clearly identify him so the executor doesn't have a problem and i mean i've seen that you know i've seen you know some estates where we have three cousins with the same name identically you know they're all named for the grandfather well you should clearly identify him. You can say so-and-so, son of, you know, and put mother and father down. So ordinarily, very rarely and occasionally it could happen. You might have two cousins with the same mother's name and father's name, not likely, but possible. And you can give their date of birth in some cases. Um, but you do want to clearly identify him. Again, it's not as important if you're named in the will as long as there's no confusion. Like if you put somebody's nickname down instead of their real name, ordinarily that wouldn't be a problem. But, you know, in a perfect world, we want to get a person's driver's license and use that name because that's usually the driver's license or New York State ID, assuming you live in New York State, is what people do to transact business. And, you know, that's what we'd like to use. Great points that way. Don't be surprised, guys, when I'm asking you to ask your agents or your beneficiaries for their IDs. I know sometimes we don't want to tell people that they may be inheriting or that they may be named as an agent, but it's very important, especially as Mr. Connor said, for agents in order to transact business that we have their right name. You won't know that there's going to be a problem until it's too late. So just make sure we do it right the first time. Now, you were talking about confusion, which this is going to be a very fun point because a lot of people are confused about this. When you're doing a will or a trust, we have what's called a rest residue or residuary. Sometimes people leave things in their residuary that they put a lot of thought into. But when you look at the assets concerned, there is, in fact, no residuary assets. So what happens? Is that a good idea to put a residuary like that if there's not going to be any assets to cover it? Like what what goes on there? Tell our listeners. A lot depends on the plan in general. I mean, one thing I don't like, let's say for the sake of argument, somebody's doing a will and they say, I I leave my house to my one son, I leave my other house to my daughter, and I leave whatever's left over to my third son. And then, of course, when the things are settled in the the dust, there is nothing else. And that third son could have an attitude about this will. Hey, you know, my my brother gets a million-dollar house, my sister gets a million-dollar house, and they say I get everything else and I'm getting nothing. That could lead to uh, some problems and discontent. So... That's one of the things. Now, uh, sometimes it's just, you know, you got one son and you're leaving X amount to your grandchildren and it's the children of your son. And then he gets whatever's left over. Well, that's okay, Fine. Assuming the son gets along with his kids and he wants the things to go to his children. 
Um, uh, you know, it all depends. But one thing I don't like is, you know, like to leave somebody a uh, residuary who's not getting something out of the will. Because sometimes when you you read a will and say, I leave all the rest residue in where I stay to my nephew, and the nephew gets absolutely nothing, I think that might cause, you know, expectations which aren't there, which could lead to problems, fights, arguments, hurt feelings. So when we're trying to do a will, we're trying to we're trying to solve problems, not make them. And so we want to come up with a plan where, you know, if there's somebody in the residuary, it's either somebody who got a, a major asset somewhere before in the will, or maybe the, the person's children is getting something in the will, but that they're not really just being, it's, it's, it's almost like, hey, hey, you're not getting anything and, you know, you know, it means nothing. Like if, remember the old Jackie Gleason, I leave my fortune. And of course, some people are going to know exactly what I'm saying, but other people and I have no clue. Well, Luckily for us, I know exactly what you're saying. Now, what would you say to those clients of mine who hit me with, what the heck do I care? I'll be dead. Because that's just, I don't know what to say to that. I'm very often not speechless, but that one usually leaves me a little speechless. Well, you know, know, if you're on our office and do your planning, well, what are we doing this planning for? It's to make it easier for people after you're gone. I mean. You know, it's I know there's some people that will. Sometimes. Listen, there, there was what was a St. John's Law School professor who deliberately did a will that took years to get through probate because nobody could understand it, and there were court hearings after court hearings, and that that was his gift to his family, whatever that they'd be in court for the rest of their lives. Um, sometimes but, that's a gift that brings them all together, and you don't even know it. Right. Well, I've been in surrogates <laughs> court sometimes where it's kind of like the family reunion. It's the only time they all get together when it's a return date in surrogates court, but. Hopefully that's not what we're, you know, working for. But when when you're doing your estate planning, the idea is to make it easier for your children, your grandchildren, um, whoever, nephews and nieces. And you're doing a will to make it easy for them. I mean, you know, like I I don't want to say, well, what do I care? Um, I'll be dead. And in some cases, that's not a bad, you know, I know some people do that. Well, you know, maybe we can save a little bit on estate taxes, death taxes. And some people say it's nephews and nieces or, you know, friends or cousins or whatever. And they say, oh, what difference does it make up? And I can't completely disagree with that. Why do you have to alter your life to make it easier for your friends, your second cousin once removed or something? Mm-hmm. And maybe you just do the, the minimum amount of work, let's say a will or something like that. And, you know, let them sort it out after you're gone. That's fine. That's a business decision. And you certainly can do that. You don't want to spend your money while you're alive to help people that really are not that close in your will, but you know, you're doing a will because you don't want to leave it to the state and you want to choose the executor and you want to make some gifts or whatever. So, but you want a plan that makes some sense. And, and ordinarily, listen, if you have children, I try very hard to, to make it equal. I mean, it's not a perfect world and sometimes things don't get divided equally, but at least I think we should try to start. If you have three children and they haven't given you a problem and there's not drug problems or other things, try to think, try to keep things equal if we can. It doesn't have to be. There's no law that says things have to be equal. You can do whatever you want. If you want to leave everything to one child and leave nothing to the other, you certainly can do that. But part of the thing, I, I think, in the state plan is to try to put assets in such a way that people 
are reasonably happy. We can't keep everybody happy, but try to keep everybody happy if we can and if that's what you want. And you may want to say, you know, to hell with my daughter. She doesn't deserve any of my money. Well, that's your that's your feeling. Come in and see us, and we'll do the best we can for the other children. I mean, I never thought this was really a big issue until I started seeing as many clients as I do. You all know I call myself a veteran for a reason. I work very hard, as per Mr. Connors. But in doing that, a lot of people's children, if they have three, they only talk to two. And they'll say, I haven't seen my children or my grandchildren in five years, ten years. And I'm almost of the thought process, if they haven't been around for that long, then why are you going to leave them in there now? What do you think about that? Well, it depends. It depends on the relationship. You know, like maybe, you know, in some cases you haven't seen your kids in, in, you know, five, ten years. They've disrespected you. Maybe you shouldn't leave them anything. Maybe you leave the, the children of those children something, you know, just to show a little bit of you know, a gift to your grandchildren. Uh, there's not a right answer. That's something we got to sit down and, and we talk it over. And that's why, you know, we often say there's not a right answer for anything. You got to sit down, talk it over. And what's the best plan? And in a lot of cases, you know, you got a husband and wife, they may have a different opinion toward the same child. The husband may say that bum, he's no good. He hasn't done anything. He's robbed money from me. And the wife will say, well, he's still my son. I want to leave him something. I've seen that. Yeah, that's true. There's not a right answer. You got to Talk it over, and if you're going to think about the answer in your mind and never come in and act upon it, that's not necessarily the the right way to do it. Whatever you do in a will is probably better than nothing. And here's the thing, you know, like for the, let's say you want to compromise it. You know, the 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 one spouse wants to leave everything to the kids in equal shares, the other spouse wants to leave it all to two of the three children and leave the third one out. Well, if there's no will, it's going to go in three equal shares. So at least you may want to compromise it and leave you know, a half a share to the one kid, you compromise it, you know, and that sometimes that's what you do. You do compromises. Things don't always go, you know, exactly the way you want it, because when you're in a marriage, you're in a partnership and you got to talk things out. And usually if all the assets are joint between husband and wife, the first one's will really doesn't apply. And, and that's why a lot of times when you write a will, and this is one of the things too, you know, a lot of times people write a will and the husband says, well, I want to leave everything to two of my children. So his will says, I leave everything to my wife. If something happens to my wife, I leave it to my two children. Then the wife says, I'll leave everything to my husband. If something happens to him, I leave it to my three children. Well, their wills have no effect once the first one dies. And sometimes you got to think this out. Maybe you do a compromise. Maybe in some cases when you have children from different marriages, maybe you do a contract to do a will. Maybe you do a trust agreement. But this is estate planning, and that's what we do at Connors and Sullivan, estate planning. And if you want to give us a call and, and try to do some estate planning with us, you're more than welcome to do that at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Nicole, thank you for, you know, being on our show. And what what offices are you usually in? Apparently all of them. It's what I've noticed lately. <laughs> All seriousness set aside, guys. I'm in Brooklyn. I am in Middle Village. I'm in Staten Island. I'm in Bayside if there's a Spanish speaker. I'm actually anywhere there's a Spanish speaker. So if you want to speak Spanish, then you can see me anywhere you want. Now, is that just to practice your Spanish or to 
you know, do some planning in Spanish. Please do not call up and make an appointment to practice Spanish. I take those calls on the weekends only. They're part of my Spanish speaking business that I'm, you know, putting together. As far as estate planning is concerned, you can call me and we can do it in Spanish if need be. Nicole, thank you for being on the show. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure. And keep listening. You'll listen to the Dogwin Raid. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized that we love them, there are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, if you go to Fort Hamilton here in Bay Ridge, there's a huge gun that's at the corner of Fort Hamilton, just outside the fort itself, and it's called a Dahlgren gun. And some people may say, well, where did it get its name? It's also a Dahlgren Street, you know, outside Fort Hamilton. Of course, there used to be a Robert E. Lee Street inside Fort Hamilton, but that was been changed. But we're going to talk a little bit about a relative of that Dahlgren. Um, and we have Dr. Bruce Venter. And he had a book out, Killing Jeff da- or Kill Jeff Davis, I should say. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I know I, I went around and touched a lot of places but we are near fort hamilton and that gun is out there and there is a dahlgren street dahlgren place but 
Jeff Davis. Who are the main characters in Kill Jeff Davis? Oh, okay. Uh, well, it's about a cavalry raid on Richmond in 1864. The commander of the raid is going to be uh, Brigadier General Judson Kilpatrick, who is a division commander in the Cavalry Corps. Um, he accepts a a colonel, Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren, into the command for the raid. Uh, Dahlgren was not part of his 3rd Cavalry Division at all. Uh, Dahlgren had been a staff officer uh, for a couple of years prior to that on uh, general officer staff. And uh, it's quite unusual that he would be included. But uh, as you mentioned about the, the Dahlgren gun, uh, that's attributable to his father, Admiral John Dahlgren, uh, who was in the Union Navy. And uh, Admiral Dahlgren was a, a very close friend of Abraham Lincoln, as the, the young people might say, BFF, you know, best friends. <laughs> and, uh, and Admiral Dahlgren could go to the White House without an appointment. So, and, and Lincoln would share different things with him about how the war was going and like that. Admiral Dahlgren at the time was a captain and he was in charge of the uh, Washington Naval Yard. And then he was eventually promoted to Admiral and he commanded the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron. So uh, one of his sons, Ulrich, uh, at a very young age, uh, 19, got into the uh, Civil War as a staff officer first. Um, he lost his leg during the Gettysburg campaign at Hagerstown, and uh, he lost his right leg, and he was laid up for a while, but uh, he he fought his way back in terms of his health, and, and he heard about this raid that was going to happen on Richmond. The, the purpose of the raid originally was to free the Union prisoners in Richmond. There were some 15,000 uh, men there. Some of them were officers. They were kept in what's called Libby Prison, and the enlisted men were on Belle Isle. And President Abraham Lincoln uh, sensed from reports back from various uh, individuals that the conditions were horrendous. I mean, it was brutal. They were taking bodies off of Belle Isle every day. And so uh, he wanted to try to save these men by sending a cavalry raid down there. And Kilpatrick was just the guy because he was all for, uh, I guess, a hell for leather guy. And um, uh, a previous raid had failed, and Dahlgren went to Lincoln personally, okay? He went above his corps commander. He went above the Army commander, General Meade, and was able to get a, a meeting with Lincoln. He explained his plan, and Lincoln bought it, hook, line, and sinker. And what was that plan? The plan was to take about 4,000 men on good horses and, uh, and capture Richmond. When they captured Richmond, they were going to release the prisoners. But his plan never said how they were going to get them out. Now, th these men were in horrendous condition because their health was bad. Um, and and but, so it was an ill-fated uh, plan to begin with. All right, so so we're saying the plan was not ill-fated, but how do, how do we get to your title, Kill Jeff Davis? Okay, that's, a, that's the best question you've asked. Uh, during the raid, Dahlgren played the part of a, uh, a, a, uh, sub, a subordinate commander, and he was supposed to get on the other side of the James River 
and free the prisoners on Belle Isle. That never happened. It's a long story, but the river was too high for him to get across. Uh, he eventually got separated from Kilpatrick, and he was killed in King and Queen County, which is uh, uh, quite a bit east of Richmond. When he was killed, his on his body were found orders, and there were two sets of orders, one that said capture Jefferson Davis and his cabinet and burn the hateful city of Richmond, Another set of orders said, kill Jeff Davis on the spot. And so that's where this raid became much more controversial than any other cavalry raid during the Civil War, uh, because it's it sort of what you would term the black flag was raised in the sense that someone wanted to kill uh, the head of a, of, a, of a government. You know, Jefferson Davis is the president of the Confederacy. Now, the, the, the question is, uh, who wanted to do that? And um, I've been able pretty much to eliminate uh, Abraham Lincoln as the perpetrator of that part of the plan. Uh, I think I can probably put more circumstantial evidence on Dahlgren himself and on uh, Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War. Now, what would be the purpose? Did, did they think that killing Jeff Davis would end the war? What's the thought process? Well, I think if you take off the head of the of the government, uh, the government is in chaos, and that might make it easier for uh, the next set of uh, actions against the Confederacy. Now, how how was Dahlgren killed, and how were the papers? How were the orders found? Okay. Um, when Dahlgren can't get across the James River, he decides to make an attack on Richmond uh, in the west end of Richmond. Uh, he's turned back by local defense troops who come out to fight him. And uh, during the night of March the 1st, he tries to make his way back to Kilpatrick's main force. OK, Dahlgren has about 450 men with him. And he tries to find Kilpatrick, but he's unsuccessful. And he keeps uh, trying to move further to the east. Uh, his objective then becomes uh, trying to get to uh, Gloucester Point on the, on the uh, York River, where he could find the Union Navy boats to help him out. Well, he comes through King and Queen County, which is a very rural county at the time, and it still is. And he... Um, uh, he's got about 90 men left in his uh, his command, and the Confederates are, have been bushwhacking him uh, for the last day or so, and they managed to get in front of Dahlgren's column, and they lay an ambush. So about 10 o'clock at night uh, on March 2nd, 1864, Dahlgren's riding down the road, and, and he gets ambushed, and he's he gets hit by five bullets, and he's instantly dead, falls in the road, and... Um, and his, the rest of his men, most of his men will surrender the following day. Some of them try to escape, uh, but they're also captured. And um, a young boy named William Littlepage, 13 years old, is rifling through Dahlgren's effects, and he finds this uh, memorandum book and some uh, loose papers, and he shows them to his commander. And uh, he uh, and this this fellow understands what's uh, the the, the crucial part of all this in these orders, and he passes it up the chain of command all the way to uh, Jefferson Davis. Now, what was the political fallout and reaction back then? What what happened? Well, the Confederate government, they decide to publish the orders 
in the Richmond newspapers. So that's one problem for uh, Lincoln and his administration. They also make uh, what I like to say photocopies. What they did is they took pictures of the orders, made about 50 copies of these, and sent them to all of the major uh, nations of the world that were important at the time, uh, including the Vatican. And they, they mentioned that, you know, can you imagine that a government was trying to do this to what to our own Confederate government. And so they, uh, it became a big hoopla for about a month or so. Uh, Robert E. Lee got involved, and he was supposed to find out from General Meade, who was the commander of the Union Army, the Army of the Potomac, he was supposed to find out uh, what was this all about. Did Lincoln order this or what? And Meade was against the raid to begin with, so he uh, had Kilpatrick write some kind of an excuse and give it to Lee. Now, Lee was very concerned because his own son was a Union prisoner at the time, okay, uh, uh, a prisoner of war. And so if anything uh, went askew, because some people in the Confederate government wanted to start hanging the raiders who were captured. Uh, that never happened. Uh, but Lee wanted this whole thing to be kind of patted down um, in, the, in the ensuing weeks after the raid ended. And that's exactly what happened because you had the spring campaign coming in. Uh, General Grant was put in charge of all the armies, and they started the massive move towards Richmond uh, with, with the main uh, Union Army of the Potomac. So it sort of went away. Now, whose handwriting were the orders in? Was that ever discovered? Well, I looked at them. Now, I didn't have a handwriting expert look at them, but I did look at lithographic copies and compared them to letters that Dahlgren wrote to his father, uh, you know, before the raid and, and probably like the year or two before that. He was constantly in contact with his father. And um, they look remarkably the same. And um, in the orders, he also uses uh, personal pronouns that would lead one to believe that he probably wrote these orders himself. So he was just like I a think rogue. I'm the first one to point that out. Hmm? He was just a rogue officer, in your opinion. Well, I, I wouldn't. I don't know if I go so far as saying rogue. Now he's 21 years old. He's uh, he's a kid, and um, he's also um, uh, he's impetuous. I think, and um, and he, he's just he's beyond his ability to uh, to handle this kind of a situation plus if you remember i said he had one of his legs amputated the year before so he's in constant pain while he's on on this raid and there's various uh, letters and diaries that the men who served under him wrote about how uh, really emaciated he looked he had to be helped onto his uh, saddle um he really was in bad shape he should not have been on that raid and i think that kilpatrick only um, accepted him on that raid because he was uh, had this political clout through Lincoln. Now, what was what was Kilpatrick's side of the story? Well, his side of the story was said that he authorized orders, but not those orders. He authorized Dahlgren to make the raid and everything, and and, and to capture Davis if possible, but not to kill him. And he said that he had approved them in red ink and like that. And, of course, the red ink didn't show up on the photographic copies. So he felt as though he was so cleared of any responsibility. And most likely, Kilpatrick was not the kind of individual 
who would want to kill Davis. Kilpatrick's personality was such that uh, he would have loved to, like, frog march uh, Jefferson Davis through the uh, District of Columbia, you know. Uh, that's that's more like he would be and, you know, get a big play of having captured Davis. He was not the guy to be an executioner. Well, let me ask you something. Why is this raid important, you know, like more than 150 years later? <clears throat> well, I think we see comparisons in, in, our, in our modern day. Uh, one of the problems with this raid was that they needed good horses and a lot of the horses were broken down in Kilpatrick's division. So there are three divisions of cavalry in the Union Army. He had to take companies and squadrons from other divisions to make up his 3,500 men that he's going to take to Richmond. So you have a command and control problem. And um, if you remember, oh, I don't know if you remember, but uh, there occurred uh, a raid to save the uh, prisoners that were in Tehran, uh, when Jimmy Carter was uh, president, and and that raid failed. And one of the reasons that that raid failed was a command and control situation, that you have soldiers serving under people or answering to people that they don't know who they are. And and that was one of the big uh, issues uh, with the raid. Now, has anybody come up with a different opinion or the, that maybe Lincoln did authorize the raid, the the purpose of killing Jeff Davis? Say that again. Has anybody, do you know of any contrary opinion where somebody said, hey, Lincoln was behind this? Uh, not really. I I, uh, I talked to, when I was writing the book, I talked to a number of prominent Lincoln historians, and they all agreed that Lincoln was not the type of person or had that type of personality that would want to kill Davis. Now, I'm sure there must be somebody out there that believes that Lincoln would have done that, but uh, I don't think anybody uh, with with credible evidence would believe that. All right. Now, where can you where can you find the book? Uh, the book is on Amazon. Uh, the book was uh, published by the University of Oklahoma Press, and um, I, Barnes and Noble, I assume, online too would have it. Yeah. Well, it's hard to find a bookstore it was, it was open today in today's world. Ago, so I don't know that you'd pardon me. It's hard to find a bookstore open in today's world, at least where we are. Oh, I know, I know. And this was published a few years ago, so it's it's not out there currently. So probably it wouldn't be in a bookstore, but you know, Barnes and Noble could order it or what have you. But I know it's on Amazon, and I know it's available at the University of Oklahoma Press. Okay, Dr. Bruce Fentner, thank you for bringing history to life. Thanks very much for having me. Okay. Now, if we can take a break, and we'll do it as another segment, you talk about American History LLC. Be happy to. Okay. All right. Very good. Thank this you, This is going to play on a different day. I'm not sure when. Um, okay. All right. Michael, ready? Yeah. It's still going. Okay. So just keep it going. Three, two, one. Welcome to the Ask the Lawyer segment. Oh, the... Uh, Take it back. Three, just, two, one. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is a guest we had on just a short time ago, Bruce Ventner, Doctor Bruce Ventner, and he, he has he's president of a outfit called American History LLC. Doctor Bruce, what what's that about? You broke up. I broke up. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'll start it from the beginning. Three, okay. two, one. 
Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With us right now is a guest we had on just a short time ago, Dr. Bruce Ventner, who's president of American History LLC. Welcome to the show again. Thank you very much, uh, Mike, and thanks for having me. Okay, so what is America's History LLC? Uh, we are a history tour and conference company, and uh, we've been in business about 11 or 12 years now, and uh, we offer basically military history tours uh, for people that are interested in various uh, American history topics. Uh, we offer tours of the French and Indian War, the Revolutionary War, the uh, Civil War, and we've done Indian Wars out west. Uh, we also have offered uh, two types of conferences through the company. One is our very popular uh, American Revolution Conference, which is held in Williamsburg each March. And we'll be doing our 10th uh, conference on the revolution uh, next March in Williamsburg. We had a two-year interruption with COVID, but uh, you know we would have been on number twelve or thirteen. But we did. We're back on track now. We also started a, two years ago a uh, conference on World War II, which we hold at uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, because of the connection with Dwight Eisenhower and his farm being there. Uh, plus, there's a man who lives in Gettysburg, has an extensive collection of uh, World War II tanks, jeeps, deuce and a halfs, and what have you. And we're able to take people uh, to that collection. It's a private collection uh, to see those items. He has a and collection so, of deuce and a halfs and tanks? Yeah, he's got quite a quite a collection. He does. Yeah. Okay. And he's opening a museum. Uh, but prior to this, uh, he... He had them in a warehouse uh, on his farm, and uh, it is amazing to see. I mean, really, he's got all sorts of vehicles related to World War II. Yeah, my wife complains because I collect military miniatures. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just can imagine if I had a couple of deuce and a half of tanks. Yeah, that's right. You need a tank. You need a Sherman tank. That's what he's got. And he's got some, a tank destroyer, too. All right. I'm it's inclined to agree, but now I'm really going to get yelled at at home. Yeah. <laughs> now, let, let me ask you something. Like, for the sake of argument, what kind of tours do you have? Like, we're from New York, so what kind of tours do you have about the Revolutionary War? Okay, uh, we just did a Revolutionary War uh, tour up in Boston, and it was entitled The Revolutionary War of Dr. Joseph Warren. And Dr. Warren was, uh, was a, a rebel. Uh, you know, he instigated a lot of actions against uh, the crown. And unfortunately, he was killed at uh, Bunker Hill. And he was a medical doctor, and, uh, but he was an ardent patriot. And so what we did is we put a theme of Dr. Warren into the tour, and we also did uh, the battles of Lexington, Concord, and Bunker Hill as well. Uh, this fall, we're doing a tour called uh, uh, Sullivan, the Sullivan Clinton Campaign of uh, 1779. Uh, that was a, a a campaign organized by General Washington uh, to send troops out into central New York to destroy the to try to destroy uh, the Iroquois Confederacy because most of the tribes in the Confederacy had uh, joined the British ranks and they were fighting uh, for the king. 
and they had led raids the previous year along the Mohawk frontier and wiped out a number of uh, villages and towns. And so Washington wanted retribution. Some say it was genocide, but uh, General Sullivan went up there and pretty much wiped out every uh, Seneca, Cayuga, Onondaga, Mohawk village that was up there. Um, We're also doing a tour in the fall on young George Washington, explaining how his development during the French and Indian War uh, was came to fruition uh, during the Revolutionary War. He learned a lot of um, ideas and concepts of leadership during the French and Indian War that he was able to apply to the Revolutionary War. Now, let's get back to the Iroquois Confederacy. You know, I, yeah. today's world, wokeness or something like that, you, you know, Washington yeah. could be heavily criticized for that campaign. And you know, we're looking at things over, you know, like 250 years ago. But what's your comment on that? My comment would be that George Washington didn't go out and deliberately try to exterminate uh, a race of people. OK, there had been raids going on in the Mohawk Valley and uh, down into Pennsylvania uh, for, you know, a two, one to two years. And uh, in 1778, you had what was called the Cherry Valley Massacre, uh, which is the subject of my next book. And uh, so they had these raids going on, and Washington had to put a stop to it. And the way to do that is to try to uh, destroy the food source of the Indian nations. And that's what he accomplished, because the Indians had to retreat back to Fort Niagara, which was a uh, a British stronghold. And they became wards of the of the Great Britain in a sense that they had to provide the food for them and uh, and all their their needs and wants uh, for another couple of years before they came back and started raiding again. Now, who was Sullivan? Who was Clinton? Uh, Sullivan was John Sullivan. He was an, a, a lawyer from New Hampshire who was a major general in the Continental Army, and he served under Washington in various campaigns, including uh, Brandywine in Germantown. And, uh, and General Clinton was James Clinton, who was the brother of George Clinton, who was governor of New York during the Revolutionary War. And it was a, a two-pronged attack, as so to speak. Uh, Su- uh, Sullivan came up from eastern Pennsylvania with his army. Clinton came from Schenectady across the Mohawk Valley. And they met down around uh, Tioga, and they defeated the uh, British loyalists and Indians at uh, Newtown, which is a battlefield down near Elmira, New York. Now, we were just talking about this with, with some other historians or whatever. The movie Drums Along the Mohawk, do you have any comment on that? Did you like I'm sure you liked it, but what do you historically? Uh, the the novel is much better. Uh, the novel came out in the nineteen thirties and it was very good. I could still remember parts of it from reading it years ago. But the movie is a little bit uh uh hokey, I guess I'd say. <laughs> uh, it, it's not not it's not a really great uh, rendition of what happened there. I, it just uh, some some of the actors are caricatures and things like that. But you know, if it gets somebody interested in the subject, that's what I always say. You know, how many years ago in the '90s uh, the that movie came out, Gettysburg, 
And a lot of the diehard people that I know, you know, panda for different things. They didn't like somebody's beard or what have you. <laughs> and um, but but if it got people, if it got young people especially to like the Civil War or to want to know more about the Civil War, then it's fine. It's just like the last of the Mohegans, you know. Um, if that gets you to want to know more about the French and Indian War. That's the purpose, uh, not the purpose of the movie, but that's that's a good purpose as an objective. Now, getting back, you know, the French and Indian War, I think, is a, a fascinating subject. And we don't really spend too much time in today's world. Well, we don't spend a lot of time on history in any event. But that's true. Uh, you, you talked about George Washington. What was his role at the beginning of the French and Indian War? Well, he um, he was an, a militia colonel, and he uh, went out into western Pennsylvania, and of course he started the French and Indian War. Actually, he was uh, he was out uh, with Virginia militiamen, and they fired on a group of Frenchmen who were uh, in uh, it was a place called Jamonville Glen, and uh, as a result, uh, he had to retreat back to what's called Fort Necessity. And he put his men together in this fortified position, and uh, he was forced to surrender because the, the main French fort from uh, uh, the Pittsburgh area, it wasn't called Pittsburgh at the time, it was called Fort Duquesne. Uh, the Frenchmen came out uh, with their Indian allies, and they surrounded Washington and made him surrender. Well, uh, that wasn't very good for him. Uh, but the following year, uh, because he had killed this Frenchman, uh, the, the British government was concerned about the encroachment of the French on the Ohio frontier. And so uh, they sent General Braddock out uh, to try to capture Fort Duquesne. And there was a tremendous defeat of General Braddock, where but Washington was involved in. And he acted as an aide to Braddock. And he um, uh, he was shot at and and uh, and Braddock was killed. And so uh, it started this whole thing with the French and Indian War. And then there were also campaigns up here in New York State, upstate New York, and uh, up into Canada and what have you. And, and you know, a, a lot of people call this like a world war. It eventually became a world war. Yes, it did. Yes. In 1756, uh, basically Britain and France went to war, which is called the Seven Years' War in Europe. You know, we like to call it the, the French and Indian War here in America, but it became a world war in 1756, and it, it spread to India, it spread to the, the Caribbean, and uh, it, um, you know, it, it was quite a, quite a situation. Britain actually ended up winning. Uh, they won the war, but they became uh, greatly in debt, and then they were looking to the colonies uh, to try to fund some of this debt, and... Here we go. We have the American Revolution that based on uh, no taxation without representation. So the French and Indian War all ties in. It's a great thing to study. Yeah. Now, American America's History LLC. What's your website? Where where can we find out what tours you have upcoming? Oh, on the website, it's America's History LLC dot com. No apostrophe in it. And it will list everything we're doing in the in the fall. Like I said, the Sullivan tour we've got. We've got the Young George Washington tour. We've got the uh, uh, the World War II conference, and um, and that's where we find it. Now you have to like American history to be on these tours. Uh, the bus tours are three days, and we go out eight in the morning to five at night. 
and we have the best historians in the field uh, running these tours. So it's just it's a great uh, experience if you really like American history. And, and, and again, why should we study these wars from 250 years ago? What, what's the purpose? Why? I think it gives us a sense of what to look for here, uh, you know, in our current uh, lifetime. You know, we see what happened to these men. We try to understand why they made certain decisions, and perhaps we can avoid some mistakes uh, that they might have made. All right. Well, listen, Bruce, thank you very much for being on Connor's Corner. And when Cherry Valley Massacre, when, when do you think that book is going to be released? Uh, I think in probably, uh, no, maybe a couple of years. Yeah. Oh, a couple of um, years. I, well, yeah. Well, hopefully we'll get you Not back soon. before a couple of years. <laughs> I hope so, too. All right. Thank you very much for being on our show. Thank you very Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? 
With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope, we can give them medicines, we can give them medical equipment, we can give them everything they're looking for, because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, there are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians, and you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. And because we have an office party today, this is your friendly producer for the Ask the Lawyer show, the wrong Mike Connors to be asking legal questions. Thank you so much for joining us, and that's a wrap. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.